Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? You know, when we last met, Noah had just come off the boat, 370 plus days on a boat with his family in very difficult circumstances, challenging circumstances. His character is radically shaped on this boat. He steps off and God says, now I need to tell you stuff. I've got five things you need to know because you need to restore this earth. And here's the things I want you to do. And Genesis 9 is written. So tonight, that's what we hear about. Five things that God gave Noah to replenish our earth. It was this, fill the earth with people, eat meat without blood, kill people who murder people, remember the rainbow covenant, and honor your father. The common thread running through these concepts is that they help man survive in this new, yet very broken world. God created what Noah needed for the human race to not only survive, but if he follows these things, they will flourish. A desire in men to have women and children, God means that will make you flourish. Food and clothes from animals, you'll flourish. Governance to control human behavior helps you flourish. Promises that you can trust so you don't live in fear will help you flourish. And a character that desires to follow God will help you flourish. Five key things. Tonight I'm gonna talk about each of those briefly, but before I start to talk about those, I wanna talk about the opposite of human flourishing, which is human destruction. It's very difficult to look at this and talk to somebody who's lost everything in a catastrophe or a natural disaster and say, God is good. When your home's been decimated, your family's been killed, and somebody stands up and says, God is good, that's a real hard pill to swallow. And it's difficult for me at times as I struggled through this. I kept thinking, God, are you really the same God? Are you really good? And it's hard to think that, you guys. It's the number one thing people leave Christianity for is because of natural disasters and human tragedies. They can't understand how a good God can be the same God that allows that kind of thing to happen. It struggles. If you don't struggle with that, you haven't had something like that happen to you yet. I have, and I have struggled with that. I've been struck by the vast number of people who've died in natural disasters. I started looking at this some years ago because we were providing food in Africa in containers where we could find, where where there was massive amounts of food shortage. And we realized that as natural catastrophes happened, there would always be food shortages and war would happen within two or three weeks thereafter. So we tracked these and started looking in about 1960, uh, these uh, natural disasters started skyrocketing. Less than 50 a year, all the way from the time they started tracking these in 1900 till about 1960s, they started elevating at a rapid pace. And we're reaching a crescendo right now of over 400 national or uh, global disasters every year that are massive in scale. 60,000 people uh, on average are dying. Now you've seen some of the more recent things. 2004, there was a uh, a tsunami that took out over 250,000 people. And recently the earthquake in Syria took out over 50,000 people. And you see this happening and you say, wow, these are crazy. And you think, what is that? Well, Matthew 24, Jesus said, when you see that happening, 
those are signs of birth pains. And the birth pain is me returning. And we're seeing it, you guys. The rise is undeniable in natural disasters and people dying in these extreme levels. In his book, Where Was God? Erwin Lutzer, the past president of the Moody Bible Institute, had four observations I'd like to quickly share with you to help get your mind at ease, or at least to start saying, when people ask this of you, how are you going to respond? First, Lutzer says, God mandated death because of the failure of Adam and Eve. So you have to believe Genesis 3 wasn't a fable or a fairy tale. You have to believe it was true to answer this part. God said, when Adam and Eve failed, there will be death, and everyone, every single person will die. And people are deeply afraid when they see natural disasters causing large-scale death. Why? Because they cannot control when and how they're going to die, and that scares every single one of us. But God has included death and destruction in his plans. Our death, no matter when and how, it happens, and it happens because he planned it to happen. When we see and experience what we experience in time, and this time is bound by this time. Our problem is we can't see what God sees. We think we do, but we can't. God has a bigger plan. God's not bound by time. God's working on a new heaven and a new earth, and it's not bound by time. So his plan is way larger. It's much bigger than anything we can understand, and his methods follow his purposes, and we don't understand those, so they don't make sense to us. The second thing, second, uh, these disasters force most people to decide if God is real. Disasters are a, t a pivot point. People either go to God or away from God. And I can tell you, many people actually turn to God when they see an uncontrollable power of nature at force. They rightly assign that immense power and that timing that was unpredictable to God because you see people praying and talking and describing God. They call natural disasters in legal terms an act of God. The lawyers actually cause it, call it that in your documents. Yeah, you'll see it. They call it force majeure, act of God. Interesting. Some of the most godless people calling it godly. <laughs> disasters and death also reveal God's love as Christians are often the main source of help with vital provisions. This disastrous time is a time when God says, now the Christians will show up because there is so much trauma and so much pain and he empowers Christians with provision to show up in and that's when he flexes. Christians also get tested in these times and they find out if their faith is real. And this is when many Christians fall away. They find out when death and destruction hits, they can't understand God and they leave God. This is a test of real faith, you guys. Disasters separate believers from unbelievers. The third thing that happens is nature's always responding directly to God, always. The Genesis flood was described in detail about God's intervening in the way that the world gave up water and water was created, all at the hand of God. If you read all through the Bible, you'll find all these stories and you note them when you read them, like in the, in the book of Acts, you'll read where Paul and Silas were in jail. And what got them out of jail? An earthquake. An earthquake shook the whole jail, broke their chains, opened the doors. An earthquake. God's in control of nature. And what did Jesus do to stop a storm on the Sea of Galilee? He spoke. 
So is God in control of nature? Yes, he is. Every moment, every time, God is in direct control of nature at all times. It's disingenuous of a Christian to say, God didn't cause the earthquake. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. If you go read in, in Numbers, God actually had an earth open up and swallow families and kill them and close the earth up because they were disobedient to God. God is in control of earthquakes. The fourth thing that, uh, that uh, uh, Lutzer says is that God put us here to help people flourish when we're surrounded by death. Some will die because of natural disasters because God decided they'll die. And Christians have an incredible opportunity to bring flourishing life to humanity during those times of death. When death is at its worst is when God's at his best and he calls Christians to rise up and bring Christ to that moment. And that's when God does his best work. My prayer tonight is that you'll see plainly where you could be working with God to cause life to flourish in the midst of what really is a time of death and dying here in the United States that often appears random and pointless. So tonight, I'm praying that you will see how you can bring life to flourishing when that is going on in your world. Let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, I ask that you give us 20 minutes now, right now, Lord, that's uninterrupted in any way. No phones, no texting, no calling, just us and you, Lord, each man with you, hearing you speak, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that I don't get in the way of that in any way, Lord. Let them hear you speak, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. In Genesis 9, 1 through 7, God commanded Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. Three quick thoughts. First, God wants the people who love him to control this planet. That's why I said that. I want Christians controlling this planet. You, go multiply. Noah, you believe in me. Control the earth. God wants us to fill the earth with people who love and follow him. This was the mandate from day one, and it hasn't changed one iota. Not ever. The play is still the play. This is our calling, and it's to fill the earth with people who love him. God wants to restore this earth. The new heaven and the earth will be a place where it's a sanctuary for God and man to live together. That, that has not changed. And why us to go do this? Because we're the best to steward his resources. Why? Because we rightly assign ownership of all, all this to God. And because we assign ownership to God, we will steward his resources correctly. We will be the best ones to care for Jesus's and God's belongings. In Genesis 1 and 9, God said to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Fast forward to Matthew 28. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Gentlemen, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, those mandates are identical. They mean exactly the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Christians, go forth and make disciples. Christians, that's what we're called to do. The mandate is crystal clear. It's not fuzzy. What are you called to do? It's not the job you have. It's to go make disciples of Jesus Christ. Go be fruitful and multiply. How are you filling the earth with people who know and love Jesus Christ? How are you doing that? Number two, if people don't have children, humanity will become extinct God said, be fruitful and multiply, because if they don't, they will stop existing. God wants people to exist. 
When there are less than 2.1 children per 1,000 women that are capable of giving birth, the global population will begin to decline. The global fertility rate has declined by 50% since 1950. You guys realize that? It's currently at 2.4, not far from 2.1. You know what the United States birth rate is? 1.6. And the only reason our population's not declining is because the massive amount of immigration coming into our borders. At the current rate, the global population will hit 2.1 by 2050. And the one that's declining the fastest, China. And the global population, when it hits 2.1, will begin to decline. Death will consume people and the population will die if we are not fruitful and multiplying. God had made it clear he wants humans to continue to multiply, not to become extinct. How can you help produce more children? You young guys, if you're below 30... Get your tail in gear, all right? Third point, people who are not committed to God's plan will naturally be selfish and have less or no children. Hear me. The people who are not, who are not committed to God's plan will be the ones who are selfish and will have none, less or no children than they should have. Children drain you of your time, money, sleep, and your emotions. We all know it. We all understand. The selfish side of every person feels those. Yet, God provides untold blessings of love and joy from children who are taught to love and fear the Lord. And you see it. I have two sons, and it is incredibly joyful. You can't find more joy than that. Psalm 127 says children are a reward and a heritage from the, from the Lord. Children are a reward and a heritage. This is why Christians have always promoted having children, because God has said these things to us. He's mandated us to do this. This is God's mandate to Christians, and that's why we have children, because God said to do it. Why? So that we may multiply and fill the earth with Christians who love and steward God's resources and bring more people to the kingdom. How does your view of children align with God's view? How does your view of children align with God's view? It's a challenging point, guys. Genesis 2 through, uh, 9, 2 through 3. God allowed men to eat meat and made the animals afraid of man. Here comes the T-bone. Two quick points. First, man needed food and clothing after he got off the boat. What was the condition of the world when he got off the boat? The global weather patterns had dra changed dramatically by the flood. There were seasons and significantly localized weather patterns. There was an ice age, and then it, was, and then it heated up. These weather patterns were really crazy, and this required man to migrate to find food and clothing, and animals were a good source of both. God put the fear of man and the animals to help animals multiply. Animals multiply much faster than humans. My son Taylor sent me a picture of a duck, and it had 10 or 12 little ducks behind it, and I sent him a note back. I said, 12 to 1, good ratio. Better than 2.1, isn't it? Or 1.6 in America. I'm like, yeah, these little boogers produce quickly. They multiply faster than humans. Right after the boat landed, there was very little plant life. So the animals go out, eat up all the food that's left. There's not much for humans. What do they need? Food. What do they eat? Animals. Animals there had to become their food to feed the people and then to slow down the reproduction of the animals who would have overtaken the people. This process was designed by God. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Jesus said, stop worrying about what? 
what you eat and what you wear. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, stop worrying about what you eat and what you wear. Why? Because God will provide all you need. This was Jesus reflecting back to this story right here. He's referring back to this. He gave them everything they need because in the animals, they had food and clothing when there was nothing on the planet. Powerful. Second thought here. God also set in motion a hierarchy of man above animals. This is important, you guys. This is a piece of theology that's really messed up in our country. God values animals. You'll see it soon. He makes a covenant with man and animals. But he did not place animals equal to or above man. He made man in his image, not animals, man, and allowed men to eat those animals. Yet many people today place animal life above or equal to human life. This is going on at tragic levels in this country. 70% of young adults, when asked, would prefer to have pets over children. That's the America we live in right now, you guys. They have no idea how God feels about children and animals. They think animals are more important than children, literally. That saddens me. And think about this. There's huge fines for killing endangered species like the bald eagle or the, the white rhino or whatever it is that you're chasing around trying to shoot. Huge fines for that. Yet, as human beings, we pay people to kill our unborn babies. And we fight tooth and nail for that right. You saw it in Wisconsin. Those college kids went off to go fight at the court so they could murder their babies. That's America. That's the country we live in now, you guys. It's so warped. In Genesis 1, 2, and 9, God said, I value human life above animal life. This hierarchy is not a license to mistreat animals. That's not what he says here. And there's no one that, that, does, uh, that looks at animals. You don't look at it that way as a Christian. It's quite the opposite. We're required to steward the animals. Why? Because they provide critical food, clothing, and emotional support for us. God made them to serve us and for us to serve him. There's a hierarchy, and that hierarchy matters to God. How does your view of animal and human life compare to what God believes? In Genesis 9, 4 through 6, God explains the value of life. I'm going to make three quick points. First, God alone chose to use blood to carry life. It's his design. He picked it. He established his vows, and he said we cannot consume it. This is God's design. He made blood important. In fact, if you study kosher laws, I paid to, to have my, all of our plants kosherized when we were in the food industry, and the Kosher racket was quite a racket. So uh, they made a lot of money on us to come in and tell us we didn't have animal blood all over our plant. There was never animal blood in our plant, but we had to pay a lot of money for them to tell us there wasn't. Kosher laws were created to keep Jews from eating the blood of animals. There's a real strong reason for that, because the blood of animals carry disease. And God knew that over time, the disease in those animals would make humans sick and kill them. So he said, don't eat, the, don't eat the blood. It's very practical not to do that. Second point, God also said human blood should never be willfully spilled. God commanded capital punishment to slow the transmission of evil. He knew it wouldn't stop it, but it slowed it. This mandate was repeated numerous times in the laws of Moses. In Genesis, God created three institutions we saw this already, guys. First, it was the institution of marriage. Genesis 1 and 2 define marriage as a union of a man and a woman. The second institution was the church. 
And where did we first see that? We saw that come from the line of Seth. Seth to Noah to Abraham to Jesus to us, a corpus of people who believe and follow God, the church, second institution. The third institution was government. This mandate to, not, to, to, uh, to inflict capital punishment was the first form of government that we see in the Bible, and God created it, governance. Capital punishment required capturing, judging, and executing murderers, and he required people to execute the murderers. He didn't do it himself. This, in essence, is what governance is, human control of other humans. God needs Christians to be active in governance, to bring biblical values to a legal system in America. Every system has a morality. It's just whose morality are you going to choose? And people say, you shouldn't bring Christianity into the legal system. Yes, you should, because there's going to be a morality. It's just whose and we should be there, you guys. They need to know what God said, and it should operate the way God required it to operate. We should bring Christianity to the legal system. We must vote, and we must be actively involved in trying to change bad laws. How often do you make your values known in the public space through voting, running for office, or working to change the laws? This is very clear in this text. God created governance, and he wanted Christian people to be involved in the governance of mankind. Third point, Christians often vote against capital punishment because they want to leave time for those to be saved. When we eliminate capital punishment, evil people continue to propagate evil. We watch it on the news night after night. He was let out and killed somebody else. He was let out and killed somebody else. He was let out and killed somebody else over and over again. That continues to happen. He's not going to repent. He's going to kill somebody else. And those who follow God, like us, all we do is get more silent and more fearful of being attacked, and we retreat from the situation. We don't move in to change the governance. We don't move to, to, to enforce the laws. We retreat as evil propagates. God demanded mankind to kill murderers to protect the human race from being destroyed. He had a purpose for this. Moses and Jesus modeled incredible discretion about capital punishment, as we do a country excessively so. But Moses and Jesus both modeled discretion with capital punishment, but neither said to eliminate it. In fact, Jesus experienced capital punishment firsthand. And when he comes back, he will exercise it to its fullest extent. So how will you help stop evil from propagating and how will you help your community know and follow God's laws instead of man's? From Genesis 9, 8 through 17, I'll make four points about covenants. First, God made a covenant, a promise to never destroy all creation at the same time with water. God said the sign of this promise is the rainbow. And isn't it great to see how many people love the rainbow now and they're all remembering that promise? I mean, it's just amazing how that promise has become so prominent. The sign was given so we would remember God. So we remember God and his promise. A rainbow should cause us to think of God Almighty and his promises, his thousands of promises to us. So when you see a rainbow, think of God. God also made the promise to Noah to manage their fear of rain. Think about it. He's been on a boat for 370 days. It rained and killed everything he knew. The next time it rains, what do you think he's thinking? Oh boy, all hell's breaking loose again. 
everybody on the boat. Get on the boat. If God doesn't tell Noah, I won't use rain like that ever again, they'll never leave the boat. In direct violation of his mandate to go and fill the earth. He will violate that promise. That's not good, because if God, he doesn't leave the boat, his family stays near the boat, they're going to run out of food, and they'll probably kill each other because they'll get so sick of each other, like you do with your in-laws. God's promise allowed those people to flourish because he said, you can go, I won't kill you that way, and it gave them a complete hope and a lack of fear. So this is the hard question, though. What fear has you hiding in your boat because you're afraid to move. What's causing you to not move right now? The second thought here is that God made the covenant with the earth, the animals, and man. God said all creation was good when he created it. Animals were kept on the ark. Clearly, God places a high value on his non-human creation. Isaiah points to animals in heaven. It's a verse where he says the lamb and the lion are all going to live together and all that kind of thing. That's one of the few verses that talks about animals in heaven. Randy Elkhorn in his book, Heaven Believes the New Heaven and New Earth, will mimic the existing earth and animals. And he claims that this covenant is his most significant proof that there will, in fact, be animals in heaven. Again, this does not raise animals above humans or put them on par with humans in any way. God gave man responsibility over the animals and the living creation and God's covenant with the animals was not to destroy everything with a flood. The animals have no idea what to do with that promise. When he spoke it to them, do you think they repeated it back and said, we got it, thank you very much. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use that to our benefit, God. They have no idea. They can't think of that, but we can, we do. Overvaluing animals is a place to test the credibility of your biblical faith. These are one of the places, guys, where if you've been a student of the Bible, your theology should start to mature as you look at the priority of man and animals. And if you're one of these guys that put animals over people, you need to check your theology and spend more time reading your Bible. There's a hierarchy, man, animals, and plants. We are to care for them, not worship them. We worship God and we serve God and they serve us. That's the hierarchy. The third point here is this covenant is a strong proof that there was a global flood. For you guys that say it was a localized flood, this scripture says you're dead wrong. This was a global flood. So either God lied or you have to change this scripture in order for you to believe this was a localized flood. This is a severe problem for the evolution crowd, guys. This verse gives them all kinds of problems. Because what do you do with this when God said, I told you I would never flood the world and kill everything again when there's been millions of people killed by floods? How do you reconcile those two? So either God lied or the whole world was destroyed with a flood. I'm going with God's plan and what he said he did. God said he killed all the world with a flood. It happened, and this promise is true. Fourth, there are thousands of promises from God in the Bible. This is what I hear. I hope you go home with. There was a guy named Everett Storms out of Canada that counted all the promises that God made in the Bible to men. And he came up with over 7,000 promises directly to man. Over 8,500 promises of God in the Bible, but 7,000 directly from God to man. Let me just read you a couple. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. God promises to fight your enemies for you. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, God promises to lead you when you trust him. 
Isaiah 55, God promises when his words are spoken, they will always get results. Jeremiah 20, 11, 29, 11, God promised he has a plan for you to prosper. Deuteronomy 4, 29, God promises you will find him when you earnestly seek him. John 4, 14, John prom- uh, Jesus promised eternal life, eternal life when you believe in him. And John 10, 28, he then promised there's no way to lose that eternal life when it comes from Jesus. And 1 John 1, 9, God promises to forgive you when you confess your sins. These are powerful promises, and that was only six of, of 7,000. <laughs> so promises and covenants, why are they there? To help us flourish so we can flourish to trust God, to remove fear, to provide hope, to liberate us from the power of sin, to allow us to accomplish this work, to build strong families and to transform the world. That's what those promises are there for, to empower us. That's what God did. I want you to be empowered. I want you to flourish. I want you to transform this world. And my promises give you that power. You can trust me. Proverbs 16.3 says this, commit your plans to the Lord and they will succeed. In 1997, I built my first building. I was a young chap, full of piss and vinegar, thought I could do everything. And I built my first warehouse, 70,000 square feet. It cost me a small fortune I didn't have. And so I borrowed it. So I built this warehouse, and I was so on fire for Jesus Christ. I put a bronze plaque on that wall. It's it's still there today. And you know what's on it? Proverbs 16.3. Commit your plans to the Lord and you will succeed. Every single clothing, garment, book, document, wall, banner, meetings, that proverb was everywhere at Packmore. Every building we ever built, every line we ever did, we committed them to Christ. Everything was committed to Jesus. Why? Because I believed that promise. I believed him. He said, if I do that, I'll succeed. I'm like, all right, God, I'm all in. And I would tell people, I would give this talk to people, and I would say, that's what he said, that's what he'll do, and that's where we stand. We are followers of Jesus Christ. Come with us and watch God make us succeed. And he did. Just exploded our business. It took care of us all those years. What God promises, he will do. And that's why those promises are good. That's why they're there. They show you that God is who he is. Guys, we are a church, a body built on covenants of God. This is what we are called to and called to live in. Men of God, we need to continue to learn God's promises. You have to have a promise of God in your head all the time. Rehearse that promise with your family, with your friends, with those at work who will listen, and then trust those promises when you have to make choices, have a promise to lean on, and then trust it. Trust it. And then look for the results when the promise is fulfilled and tell people about the results so they know that that's in God, in fact, from God. What promise of God will you memorize, rehearse, trust, and pursue this week? What promise of God are you going to go get? Go get it, guys, and live on promises. We don't live on what the world promises. We live on promises of God, not the promises of this stinking world. In Genesis 9, 18 through 28, Ham humiliated his drunken father who was laying naked in his tent. Three very brief thoughts. First, Noah admonished Ham for treating him with disrespect. He then spoke harshly about the future of Ham's son, Canaan, and his descendants. 
And the words of Noah predicted the future of those men based on the character of their father, Ham. Ham dishonored his father, Noah, a reflection of Ham's flawed character. And we see from the history of Israel that those Canaanites and many of their descendants lived despicable lives that God absolutely hated. He abhorred those people. And why? Because they created false religion, pagan religions. All of the pagan religions came from that group of people. All of the ones that are out there, all from that crowd. And at one point in the history of Israel, God told the Israelites to destroy all of those tribes of Canaan, all of that crowd, to kill them all, because that's what they were, pagans. Bad character of Ham led many people away from God. The good character of Noah led all of us to God. Where are the flaws in your character that are causing the people to be led away from God? What flaws in your character are causing people to be led away from God? Second point, every dad makes mistakes. Dads, every dad makes mistakes that will be passed to their children, and their children will have to overcome those. And all the dads that know that, right? Steve, teenagers, we got them, right? We all got them. All of us guys, kids were like, yep, all of my sins passed to my children and they've got to overcome those. Yet in Exodus 20, 12, God says what? Honor your father and mother. You don't think he didn't know that the sins of the father were going to pass to the kids? He knew that. So how would he ask us to do that then? What's he saying? How do we honor sinful parents? Jesus told us in Matthew 18, very simply, we're to confront the person who sins against us. That's it. That's it. Confront the person who sinned against you. And with fathers that are propagating evil in your life, you have to confront them, just as Jesus said. Now, you can do that in a respectful way or a disrespectful way, and that's where the honor comes. But you don't let them get away with it. If a father is sinning against a son, the son has every right to confront his father with his sinful behavior. Every right. Just do it respectfully. And this is difficult. I know it is. But you have the calling in you as a Christian to confront that sin and help your father come to grips with where he's deviating from God. How can you honor your parents while helping them understand the impact their parenting had on their life, on your life? Lastly, Noah's drunkenness cannot be ignored. Can't be. Drinking alcohol is not bad. Unfortunately, it can turn bad pretty quickly if you let it. And especially with men whose character does not have strong discipline or men who have a predisposition genetically to alcoholism, family, alcohol can be insanely destructive. So let's not overlook Noah's misbehavior here. My family of origin was filled with pain from alcohol and bad characters. I can't tell you how much pain I saw. I can't even begin to describe the amount of times my stepfather was drunk, my brothers were drunk, my sister was drunk. I can't describe it. It just went on and on and on. And the pain from that has never stopped. It's never stopped. My question for you is, how will alcohol help your family and friends flourish? Honestly, how will alcohol help your family and friends flourish? Let me close with these thoughts. God provided five ways for us to flourish in a world that's going to be filled with sin and death. The ability and desire to create children that ultimately follow Jesus Christ. Food and clothes that come from animals. Governance to control human behavior. Covenants and promises that we can trust. And Christian character that desires to follow God. Christian men are called to lead in human flourishing. 
And listen, guys, the trail of your life should be scattered with life. People around you should be better because of Jesus in you. Your impact should be noticeably good. People should want to be around you because you bring life to their life. And men of God, don't exhaust life. We don't extinguish life. We don't kill life. We create it. As I thought about life after the most destructive natural disaster in the history of the world, the Great Flood, I realized godly men were sent by God to rebuild this earth. And I thought, where do I see that today? What's an example of that? And I'll give you one. A great example is Samaritan's Purse. It was started by Bob Pierce in 1950, over 50 years ago, 1970. And they traveled all over the world to help rescue people's lives. Samaritan's Purse takes $665 million of donations every year, and they mobilize thousands of volunteers all over the world after natural disasters hit. Those 400 natural disasters that hit all over the world, they're there at every one of those to break, bring help and healing to people. And they, who do they rally? The Christians, us. They mobilize us. They get us to volunteer, and we go out and help bring life to the people that are hurting after these natural disasters. We've read Genesis 9 and know this is exactly what God wants, don't we? Help human life flourish amidst great human suffering. This is the picture of Noah. He restores and re makes flourishing what happened right after the flood. And what area will you try to put effort this week to help people around you flourish? This is the call of Christians, guys, to help people flourish while death and chaos is reigning in our world, and we've been equipped to do it. Let's pray together, guys. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. Thank you for this great text. Thank you for Genesis, Lord. Thank you for equipping us with all the things we need to help you make this world flourish, Lord. Give us strength and courage to do so. Help us not waver or move back, Lord. Help us step into these hard places with a conviction and with a power that's reflected in you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>